0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another Lab News podcast. Hope everyone is well. Now, I've got a real corker of an episode for you coming up, and I'd like to start with a quick question What has this sound got to do with medical breakthroughs? Now, that was the telltale hiss of a Russell's Viper, a venomous snake that's to be found in the Indian subcontinent. And you would do well not to be bitten by one of these creatures. Symptoms of a bite include bleeding from the gums, a drastic drop in blood pressure and kidney failure. And the mediator of all of that biological disruption after a bite is, of course, the snake's venom. But it is this very thing, venom, of all kinds, from all different forms of creatures that is proving very useful for drug discovery. So why is that?
1: Um, The uh, synthetic chemists have only had hundreds or maybe a thousand years of of actually uh, putting chemicals together to make drugs, Um, whereas evolutions have millions of years to hone these things.
0: That was the voice of Steve Trim. He's the founder and chief scientific officer of VenomTech. Now, to my mind, they are one of the most innately interesting biotechs They supply drug discovery and life sciences with venoms of all kinds. So in practice, what that means day to day is that Steve and his team spend their time looking after and milking the venom from all manner of venomous creatures. So Steve is an expert in not just the animals, but also the biology of the venoms and why they are so useful for drug discovery. So there really is no one better to talk to about all of this. Now, I should set the scene for you. When I spoke to Steve, like many of us, he was working from home, but I happened to catch him in his animal room, of course. Why wouldn't he be in his animal room? And he was quick to point out that he wasn't the only one in on the interview. Now, this is my, this is my animal room in my house. So I lived on the dining room table during lockdown one
1: and uh, then moved into the the animal room um, about a month ago um, which is quite nice actually for the winter, it's nice and warm and cosy. But two uh, spiders up there that uh, can be a bit rebellious. Sometimes during conversations they come out on the front of the glass and the one on the left is about the size of my hand so when she's out the front on the glass it's just quite a visible spider.
0: Amazing. All I could really offer in return was the potential entry of a slightly wayward terrier that might give the occasional wag, but that's really not as impressive, is it? So I started by asking Steve and any of his creatures that cared to have an opinion on the topic, why it is that venom is so useful for us when it comes to drug discovery.
1: We can start this from from either end of the story, but Uh, I generally start at the final drug end because that sort of helps people understand the the rest of the situation. So there's uh, numerous drugs from venoms out on the market and several of those have got blockbuster status. So captopril, so this is the angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, uh, but they inhibit ACE1. So scientific research in the late 70s, early 80s was looking at how we didn't know how blood pressure was regulated, but knew that people being bitten by fertilant snakes, of Bothrops genus, could die of a catastrophic drop of blood pressure. And so, you know, that, okay, how does this work? What's in there? So, those um, uh, uh, ACE inhibitor peptides um, were actually the key to understanding that mechanism. And then the actual drug is a small molecule that mimics the action of the venomous and ACE inhibitor. Whereas uh, drugs like bieta, so this is a glucagon like peptide from the one of the few venom truly venomous lizards the healer monsters uh, and this was actually discovered as part of their prey manipulation because they eat large prey infrequently it's thought that actually they it's evolved to help them control their own glucose homeostasis but because venom exists in a venom gland essentially waiting to be deployed it has to be stable and there's you know plenty of venoms have proteases in them uh, and so glp1 from the healer monster is more stable about 10 times in terms of plasma stability than human glp1 so it's already drug-like just purely because of the nature of being in a venom so um that's that's biata or exenatide is the the compound name and um, there are a, a slew of um clot busting and breaking down uh drugs from viper venoms so people bitten by vipers often have vascular leakage and hemorrhage and um poor coagulation of, of blood uh, and so again that that people okay well when you've got a clot in the wrong place perhaps something like this will break it down and they do and then you've got a drug like Prealt. So Prealt is a ziconotide. It's a cone snail peptide. A lot of people are go, wow, venomous snails. It's like, yes, there are venomous snails and they are very dangerous. That um, uh, this is a calcium channel blocker. And so this was just going more through drug discovery biology, more than envenomation pathology. Um, but when you've got a soft squidgy snail that's evolved to amazingly eat bony fish, the only way it can do that is stopping that fish very very quickly and uh, so you've got very potent uh, calcium channel blockers uh, from these venoms and they're actually used in um spinal pain delivery uh, so you've got this uh, collection of, of drugs that have made it as um, fully licensed drugs they've you know many of them been on the markets for for many years and um and most of them are actually synthetic proteins Uh, It's only a few like captopril that are actually small molecules. So that's one sort of start point to get people thinking that actually, yeah, Venoms can make and do make uh, good drugs. We then take this back where we operate is at the early discovery phase. So most of our customers have a interesting drug target that they are struggling to to hit, be an orphan GPCR or they're struggling to get selectivity with an ion channel or potency with an enzyme inhibitor for instance we bring a library of uh, mostly peptides there are some small molecules and polyamines and things in there as well uh in certain fractions that's actually separated out into pretty much its component parts and so when they screen them they can use them just like a compound library but actually find some novel pharmacology because we've got completely different um structures to, to work with and so whereas our customers are generally looking to get a tool to get to proof of concept. It's not that they're not thinking this might make a drug at the end, but they need to fix a problem. You need to have a a ligand for your drug target to be able to test how that drug target works and whether it is a therapeutic target. So people are screening venoms to potentially become drugs, but their mindset is more, I need to fix this problem to see if this target's worth being druggable in the first place.
0: Okay, so that makes sense. Either a venom can be directly used as a drug or a component of that venom is so good at latching onto a target that's of interest to a drug developer that it can be a very useful tool indeed. Now, the thing that is key to know about all this is that a venom isn't a single component substance. There are sometimes hundreds of different peptides in any given venom.
1: Yeah, and yeah, hundreds is the right number for the sort of average Um and shrews are the least complex venoms. Some of their venoms have three or seven individual components in them, which actually for us is weird. And then the uh, some of the Australian funnel webs are, are on the other end of that scale with about 3,000 separate entities uh, in their venoms. Um, and most are sitting in a sort of high tens, early hundreds sort of space.
0: So evolution has armed these deadly critters with a veritable armory of chemicals in their venoms. And of course, that's why they're so useful for us as drug discovery screens. There's so many components in there that could be active on a biological target that they're an incredible resource. Now, speaking of evolution, do we know everything there is to know then about these venoms?
1: So people think about venoms being hemotoxic, neurotoxic, cytotoxic. And yes, they are um but they do a whole lot more that we just don't understand and when we screen against new um you know, gpcrs or, or iron channels and things like this we find hits and venom actions that the evolutionary biologists don't know about and one great example of of how we got into trying to push that further and so in the early days of the first ever high blood pressure medication captopril came from snake venom uh, and so that's uh, evolution biology venom evolution coming into drug discovery and but we found a great example which we're trying to get published it's been a bit of a long project there's a huge amount of data of pushing the other way so antimicrobial peptides have been known from venoms for decades um, but there's been no evidence of of why these animals would have antimicrobial peptides in their venoms is it because of a poor immune system or, or hangovers from doing other things. Um, we discovered with a great collaboration at the um, University of Northumberland plus many other people involved as well. The venoms have a microbiome so there's an arms race between a bacteria infection or, or you know actually a microbiome in the venom gland and the venomous animals so they're, they're fighting each other. Uh, and therefore you've suddenly got an explanation from an evolutionary point of view of why you've got antimicrobial peptide. That's great to show that actually drug discovery is helping evolutionary biology um, and sort of almost returning the
0: favour as it were. So direct drugs, drug screening tools and now maybe even a potential new source of antimicrobials. Venoms are beginning to sound a little bit like an elixir. So how and why did Steve start VenomTech? Having worked in drug discovery for Pfizer and kept exotic pets as a kid, you have to ask, what came first, a love of the animals or a love of drug discovery?
1: The two are parallel, but the, the instigation of Venom Tech is very much from my pro- professional career. It just, you know, we're both of us, my wife and I were really interested in the natural world. We're both biologists as a lifestyle more than a career. And um, as kids, we used to keep, um stick insects and praying mantids because uh, my, my brothers also ha- had a load of exotic pets as well um, but uh, we weren't allowed spiders or snakes in the house um, so uh, that was sort of limited to, to uh, the insect uh exotic pets and uh, so you know that was sort of going alongside but uh as a drug discovery biologist i did a degree in genetics and uh, then with looking at the transcriptional profiles of diseases um and part of the initial part of my work at Pfizer was a rotation. So I went through three different teams as part of the plan, worked in tissue repair, gastrointestinal and genetic technologies and ended up in tissue repair for a couple of years until they um, closed that team and decided to, to change things. Uh, and then there's an opportunity to go into pain and neuroscience, which is not something I really thought about before, but found absolutely fascinating from the beginning. And um, so i spent spent best part of eight years, studying pain and neuroscience and uh, how principally how iron uh, channels signal pain in a pathological state as well as a, a normal situation and the big challenge there is that uh, iron channels are really difficult to get selective drugs for so things like lidocaine are really great at blocking pain iron channels but they also block cardiac ion channels so you can't take it as a tablet or a, or a, a drug in any um substantial dose um and so what we're sort of looking at the the scientific literature was showing several um venoms that's a technical term for tarantulas, um actually being quite selective for pain relevant sodium channels and not hitting these cardiac ion channels which are very closely related and so that started an interest of actually the venoms that i have from the animals in the house are actually really useful research wise and so just trying to To source these venoms for our own uh, research and it was really difficult and um, we could buy the whole venom from um, a place in Texas but um, we couldn't get anything that was sort of assay ready or anything like this it was just a measure of crude venom and so it sort of started that that idea and obviously I've been keeping uh, non-dangerous spiders and snakes as pets at the same time so when Pfizer decided that I needed something else to do, uh, along with a lot of my colleagues, I uh, (laughs) found myself sitting with three key skills. I understood the pharmacology of, and had been the customer or tried to be the customer uh, of getting venoms. I understood the safety of working with venoms and toxins and and biologicals, uh, because I'd written many of the procedures. And I also knew the husbandry of the animals so I could solve the supply problem from source. And so within a month of actually having left Pfizer I had venom Tech incorporated and I was suddenly owning a company
0: so it's been a real coming together then of professional life and hobby with incredible results but are there any competitors I mean does the drug discovery world have many people to turn to if what they want is purified venom is it either venom tech or a bloke in Texas with a load of rattlesnakes in his garage there's clearly both
1: but there is you know there's sort of a handful that we um so regard as as actual competitors that are working in in drug discovery a lot of the other venom labs are producing venom for anti-venom um and so they're needing you know venoms in gram quantities uh which for us is heroic i think we stand out as being actually targeting the venoms to the um the drug target in the process whereas um sort of the competitor intelligence we have from their their websites and conferences and things that they often group the venoms by taxonomy whereas we're fairly agnostic to that we're grouping them by their impact on the gpcr signaling or ion channel signaling which gives a higher hit rate in the library
0: it's this laser-like focus on the effect of the constituent parts of a venom on a particular biological target of interest that make that library all important and so that begs the question that you're no doubt screaming at me to ask, what deadly creatures does Steve have and what's it like to handle them on a day-to-day basis?
1: We have got about 100, about 170 species, I think, at the moment. We're, we're aiming to be the sort of 200 mark um, next year. And the major workhorses are the theraphosids. So um, there's an interesting story around it. You know, so what people would commonly call tarantulas but biologically speaking the tarantula is a a true spider a wolf spider from uh southern europe Uh, and so the tarantulas are from the family therophosidae that the what people know as the, the big hairy spiders and um so they should be called therophosis we're sort of championing that along with our friends in the zoos that to correct taxonomical terms but we've got um 50 or 60 species of of those big spiders, and they are the main workhorses for, for two reasons. One is they've uh, evolved some very cool pharmacology in their venoms, um, but also those are venoms that are not uh, easily available in, in the open market. So because they're not dangerous to humans uh, and in venomation, they've not been studied that well, and there's no need for an antivenom, let alone anyone trying to produce it. So um, that, they were sort of the that where the niche in was. Um, we also have, um, a good collection of, um, scorpions, um, again, for a similar reason from things, the, the wonderfully named death stalkers and, and African fat tails. So the genus of the African fat tails is Androctonus, which translates as man killer. Um, so they're serious, serious animals. Uh, and then we've got, um, black widows and Brazilian wandering spiders and they, the sort of poster boys of the dangerous spider world, um. And then got access to about 60 species of, of venomous snakes from um, huge king cobras down to just small carpet vipers and things
0: so maybe that sent a chill up your spine or maybe it had you smiling from ear to ear depending on your outlook and thoughts on all things creepy crawly apologies if you're in the former camp but we're not done yet so strap in i wanted to find out how one goes about extracting the venom A lot of these critters are obviously very different. Sometimes it's from their teeth or their tail or effusions from their skin or mucosal glands. There must be some really challenging differences between the species.
1: So, yeah, each one is, each sort of group is different. And then there are subtle differences within each species within those groups. Um, So one of the key things that defines theraphosids and true spiders, so true spiders are pretty much all the other spiders that you find, you know, in this country are all true spiders. And the therophocid fangs are parallel and the true spider fangs are opposing. So just geometrically, your collection devices have to be different
0: because the, the fangs that deliver the venom are uh, at a different orientation. Ah, now, collection devices. As you'd imagine, you can't just search these up on Amazon and buy them. The team at Venom Tech end up customising most of their own. Yeah, so um, we've pre- you know there are, there are papers out there, um, which is where I started from. Um,
1: but they, you know, not many, uh, certainly at that time. And uh, the overall approach was out there, but the optimization has very much been done in-house. Uh, there's a lot of repurposing of other, other labware <laughs> because we can't just buy the tool we want. Um, we, we've had to, uh, to make it and, and redesign it. Um, although nowadays there is actually a Scorpion milking machine um, available, um, but again, it's
0: designed at the, the anti venom market, producing large scale venom for anti venom work. Right. Important note: before we all rush out and order a scorpion milking machine, and I can assure you, it's now on my Christmas list. There are a few, as you'd imagine, safety concerns to consider first. So, um, when I um,
1: set this up, you know, coming from a background of pharmaceutical health and safety, when I saw people who were keeping venomous animals. Um, It was quite scary, more than quite scary, to be honest. (laughs) And I'm used to the pyramid of control. You you look at separation from hazards as your second approach. Your first approach is, do you need to have the hazard? And ultimately for us, if you need to collect the venom, you need the venomous animal. So tier one, you can't not do it. But can you separate for yourself from the hazard? And it's like, that's where my
0: thinking is and uh, obviously was at the beginning. Fair enough, a very good and safe approach. But I guess you have to allow for the fact that accidents happen. A bite or a sting could in fact occur. So does that mean if you're running a lab like Steve's, you have to have mountains of antivenom just in case? What you do after you've had the injury is your last
1: thought in this process. But when people think about venomous animals, they immediately think of antivenom. But antivenom's not a great drug. Uh, It's a equine or ovine fab fragments uh, which are themselves obviously foreign biologicals and so the serum sickness is an aller- allergy to the horse or sheep uh, antibodies so if you've got envenoms the antivenom is, is not necessarily it is the best treatment we have by far and it, it is life-saving without doubt but it is not to be just given uh, an, unless it's under uh, uh, medical uh, control so even if um, it was a sensible approach to think of the treatment before stopping the injury the actual treatment itself is not not perfect so my, my thinking was separation from hazards and management and control processes and safe systems of work and we, we patented a safe method of feeding dangerous snakes but to me it was just logical when zookeepers feed tigers they don't go in the enclosure with the meat on their back either the tiger is locked away in its home enclosure or there's a two-way gate on the outside uh, and so uh, we got a bit of koi. Uh, um plumbing uh tubes which are sort of six or seven centimeter diameter tubes with slide gates in them and a screw cap on the outside bolted that to the snake enclosure you feed them um defrosted rodents so defrost the rodent slide it in the tube so you can unscrew the cap from the outside and the sluice gate shut on the inside you screw the cap up to make the outside secure open the sluice gate it took a bit of training for the snakes to pick up their food from there But the first time we fed a black mamba without opening the enclosure was a day for massive smiles.
0: And to me that was just logical, but we got that pattern granted. Okay, so snakes safely dealt with. What about the other critters? We pioneered using
1: CO2 as a management technique in, in venomous arthropods. Brazilian wandering spiders in particular. They are the fastest animals I've ever seen. They go so fast that your visual field appears to fail to compute they just appear to teleport in front of your eyes um and so we, it's not good to just open the box and try and manipulate the spider um you know people keep them as pets we've we bought them from the pet trade how will they manage it i, I do not know because they're bonkers um and so by having a a small bolt hole that the spider can't get out of we can unscrew the bolt hole put food in put water in without the animal being able to get out uh, and then using a co2 line so carbon dioxide is um sort of narcotic for want of a better phrase in invertebrates we use the term anesthetic but whether it is or not is a is debated you know arthropod biology is so bizarre they're unresponsive they don't respond to pain they're immobile and flaccid as a an anesthetized uh, vertebrate would be totally recoverable so it, you know it, uh, and so yeah we can put the co2 line in anesthetize them in the home enclosure when said spider is asleep it's safe to work with and so yeah we've pioneered that and also using um, a laminar flow hoods so and now actually we've got a, a nice downflow table for the american spiders so the american therophocids kick urticating hairs are about uh, 1.3 millimeters long they look like some of them look like barbed wire some of them look like um, hawthorn or blackthorn bushes some of them look like ears of barley actually some of the most irritating ones um, and they kick these in in defense against predators They've been discovered three millimeters deep in corneas. And when a one millimeter hair is three millimeters deep, you can't wash it out. <laughs> and so again, separation from hazards using laminar airflow um to actually take these hairs away from the operators when they're working with these animals. And so, you know, by putting these things in place, our, our accident books have you know, a couple of splinters and paper cuts and you know normal
0: normal stuff so if you weren't slightly arachnophobic before this then the idea of a spider that moves so fast you can't really see it or ejected hairs that bury themselves in your eyes may have changed that a little although i hope not because they are incredible creatures as all the species that Steve keeps are which makes me wonder how does he choose which ones are going to be useful to keep yeah so our
1: drive is twofold uh, one is customer um so yeah people are asking yeah it's great what venoms you've got but uh, on on any given year there's 10 or so customer requests for species we don't have um so then we look at look at sourcing them and most of the time we're successful um but also we we build diversity so in compound screening your diversity set is what gives you the idea of which pharmacophores are most useful for which particular target so we, we did the same thing as, as if it was a, a chemistry lab is building that as diverse both phylogenetically and geographically as possible and that just gives us the wider scope of pharmacophores to to follow for any particular target um and so you know i've just written a couple of uh, book chapters and one of the things in the introduction is you know sort of reading papers around how many venomous species are and the current number sits at about two hundred and twenty thousand and when you consider that venom is essentially like crude oil it's a complex mixture of lots of different components then there are literally hundreds of millions of possible pharmacophils within the venom systems and we we, we have no aims to even get into the um you know 10 venomous species let alone uh, uh, approaching all of them because they are vastly diverse and some of them particularly challenging as well as some of them being being obviously rare and endangered um, we sort of have a good mix of things um, we pick up our, our collect our animals from uh, captive bred stocks so we're not taking from the wild for the vast majority of the time you know there's some exceptions when there's um a non-endangered species and we might bring a culture in that we can then establish uh, in captivity later on but there's definitely the exception
0: So there you have it. Drug discovery scientist, animal keeper and all round captain of all things Venom, the brilliant Steve Trim there. But just before I let you go, there's one slight twist in this tale. This year, of course, COVID-19 disruption has caused many businesses all kinds of issues and some of them some successes. And so it was to be with Venom Tech.
1: So the 16th of March 2020, we had a cake and celebration of, of 10 years of Venom Tech. And on the 17th of march i sent the team home to work from home (laughs) to work out what was going to happen next all our customers at the time had also shut their labs so that sort of stopped and so we were working from home apart from animal care and um we thought well what can we do um to to make this different so we came up with an idea of using the covid 2 spike protein as a peptide it wasn't infectious we didn't need live cells or live virus so we could do it in our class 2 lab and we uh, built a spike covid 2 binding assay and we've proved we had some venoms that disrupt the binding and we've also got some um venoms that also disrupt that inhibit h2 at the moment it looks like they're different
0: yeah that's right as if they weren't miraculous enough it looks as though components of some venoms could even help us fight the global pandemic of covid19 well well done steve i'd say that's a lockdown well spent So you can check out what Venom Tech are up to at VenomTech.co.uk. And actually, if you go to the Lab News YouTube channel, one of the very first videos we did was with Steve at his lab. And there's some great footage of a CO2 anaesthetized scorpion. So it's really worth checking that out. Okay, thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. If you listened to this before Christmas, have a lovely Christmas. If you're listening to it after, happy new year.